Amen. Thank you, Pastor Bill. Happy Palm Sunday, everybody. Good job with your palms and your dancing. It was fun to, to sing together. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn those on or get them out and open to Luke 19. It's where we'll be this morning. And as you're opening to Luke 19, I want to tell you a story about a boy named Charlie. I, if you're Charlie, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm actually making this up. So <laughs> if your name's Charlie, sorry, I'm not trying to call you out. Let's think about this boy named Charlie. And kids, hopefully you can track with me on this story, okay? So Charlie loves his grandparents. And his grandparents often give Charlie incredible gifts. Great stuff. They're so generous towards him. But Charlie hasn't seen his grandparents for a while. I don't know, let's just make something up crazy that would probably never happen, like a global pandemic, right? For some reason, hypothetically, if one of those would happen. Charlie hasn't seen his grandparents for a year. And then again, in our hypothetical uh, pandemic, there becomes a vaccine. And now all of a sudden, Charlie can see his grandparents again. And that day comes when Charlie's grandparents pull up beside his house. Charlie throws open the door, runs down the sidewalk, stops right in front of Grandma and Grandpa and says, where are my presents? Ooh, I hear the groans. How are you feeling about that? Kids, how does that sit with you? <laughs> Grandparents, how does that sit with you? I don't care who you are. There's something about that that's like, oh, that's not right. That's no good. It's actually really sad. And if I were Charlie's grandparents, I think that would make me cry. Because it would be really obvious in that moment what was more important to Charlie. The grandparents or the presents? And that leaves you inside a little bit like, oh, that's not good. And that's exactly what Palm Sunday is all about. Let me show you what I mean by that. Luke chapter 19, we're going to read, start in verse 28. So hear the word of the Lord from Luke 19. After Jesus had said this, meaning he was teaching uh, his, his followers in a, in a crowd, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And as he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. And those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. And so they brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. And when he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles that they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied to them, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Now, let's just pause there for a moment. I don't know about you, but I've always really loved Palm Sunday. It's this Sunday that we celebrate every year 
in the liturgical church calendar where we celebrate Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem where He's being proclaimed King. And it's awesome, and it's fun, and we have the palms, and it's, it's this beautiful celebration. And at the same time, I kind of have these mixed emotions because I also know that Palm Sunday initiates what is the darkest week in human history. When Jesus comes but is rejected and is crucified, all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, record this week's events in incredible detail, starting all four of them with Palm Sunday. In fact, I would say that this week and this event is even more important than Christmas, which we get really amped up for. But while it's an amazing and exciting Sunday for us, it's also a greatly misunderstood Sunday. So I'm going to take a page out of Pastor Jen's books and tell you three things, three things that Palm Sunday has that to, to do for us, what, three things that Palm Sunday does. First, Palm Sunday reveals, Palm Sunday declares, and Palm Sunday invites, okay? It's going to reveal, declare, and invite. So let's see what it reveals. I don't know if you ever pay attention to sermon titles or not, but this morning's sermon title is Hope Misplaced, because this is what Palm Sunday reveals for many of us, is hope that has been misplaced. When I say the word hope, I think we have to be a little bit careful, because when we, in our kind of our common English usage of the word hope, we think of it more as like wishful thinking. Like, boy, I hope the Eagles don't screw up another draft this year like they always do. I hope I get a good grade on this test that I didn't study for at all. But that's not the way that the Bible uses the word hope. The Bible uses the word hope as a synonym, as a substitute for confidence and trust. It's not, I hope that something happens. It's that I hope in someone or something. It's a big difference. Hope always, biblical hope always has an object that you're putting your hope in. It's whatever you're looking for to give you real meaning and worth, purpose, life, joy, peace. Whatever is most ultimate to you, whatever is ultimately important to you, is what your hope is in. And as humans, we don't have a choice as to whether or not we hope. You will put your hope in someone or something. The question is just what? It's whatever is the end goal of your life, whatever's most important, whatever you bend your life around that consumes your thoughts and your money and your time and your everything, all of your energy. It's what you're putting your hope in. And so as I say that, you look back at Palm Sunday, at the story we just read, and it, it might not seem to you on the surface that they have misplaced their hope. Because actually on the surface, it looks like they're putting their hope in the right person. They're calling Jesus the Messiah. They're anointing him as their king. And if you lived in first century Israel and you knew your Old Testament as well as they did and all the cultural significance, you would see the clues as clear as day. You would see that they are anointing Jesus as king. From the, the cult that he rides in on, this donkey, is a point back to Zechariah 9, right? You're familiar with this if you've grown up in the church around Palm Sunday. Zechariah 9 says, Rejoice, Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And the people go before Jesus and lay down their cloaks, giving him the royal red carpet treatment. And they're even shouting things that are pointing back to Psalm 118. Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, is what Psalm 118 says. And Luke changes it a little bit and says, it's not just someone, it's the king. 
Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And it seems really positive, like they're putting their hope in the right person. That's how it seems on the surface. But I want you to imagine with me, you're, you're a part of this crowd. And there's this party and this celebration going on. And you stop dancing and waving your palm branches. And you look over at Jesus, the man of the hour, the one we're declaring king. And what do you expect to see on his face? A grin from ear to ear. They get it. It's me. But that's not what happens. You look over at Jesus, and he's weeping. Now, I don't know if you've ever been with someone, and they start crying, and you're kind of like, is that, a, is that a good cry or a bad cry? You know, you have those happy tears. This is not a good cry, okay? Not a good cry. Let me show you why. Pick it up in verse 41. As he, Jesus, approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side, and they will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls, and they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. I mean, talk about a mood changer, right? Everybody's dancing and celebrating. Here's Jesus weeping. And what, is, what has happened that makes him essentially pronounce a remix judgment? He's taking older minor prophets, warnings to Israel of exile that's coming, and he's mixing them all together and saying, the same problem is coming to you guys. What makes him do that? Well, one of, I think, the most important things that you see as you watch the life of Jesus, which we're just jumping into a little bit of this here, but if you're reading the story all along, you would see over and over again the phrase that says, and Jesus knew what was in the heart of man. Jesus isn't tricked by a, a facade. You can't be dramatic enough for Jesus to buy into your acting. He knows your heart and he knows the hearts of the people around him. Look back up at verse 11. We didn't read it. Just want to go before. This is the section that comes right before Jesus and this crowd heads towards Jerusalem. Verse 11 says that while they were listening to this, more of Jesus' teaching, he went on to tell them a parable. Because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. You see, most scholars are pretty quick to point out that the people of Israel had a very different idea of what the kingdom of God would be like than the one that Jesus brought, which is why when Jesus comes on the scene, most people rejected him. All the ones who were intellectual, all the religious leaders, they had a very different idea as to what the kingdom of God was going to be like. In fact, most people are quick to point out that their understanding of what the Messiah would do is that the Messiah would come, destroy their earthly enemy, which was Rome, and reestablish them as a nation state that was sovereign and autonomous and not under the rule and authority of someone else. In other words, it's a nationalistic version of the kingdom of God, Israel above all else, where they, on the other side of that, would have the power and the authority over others. 
That's the majority of Israel's understanding as to what the Messiah was going to be. And Jesus knows this. Jesus clearly has a different picture in mind. He comes because he's enthroned as king, but when is Jesus' most, when is he enthroned? When is his most powerful moment? Is when he's hanging on the cross, defeating the greater enemy than Rome, the enemy that's not just against the nation of Israel, but is against every human that has ever walked to this planet except himself, and that is sin and death. He is targeting the greater enemy, and Israel is wanting to settle for something less. What's the key here? The last line, I think, gives it away in the passage we just read. You did not recognize the time of God coming to you. But they were quoting Bible verses. But they were singing praises to God. And Jesus says, yeah, but you missed that God has come to you. And what it is is they were using Jesus as a means to some other end. Jesus was not the end, but he was a means to power, a means to their own authority and freedom. God has come to his people, but they're more interested in what they might get from him than getting him, which reveals that their hope was not ultimately in God himself, but in what God might give them. See, it's really easy for us inside our kind of religious church bubble to look at all those non-religious people out there and point out their misplaced hope. It's really easy. It's really tempting. Every time you watch the news, see some celebrity do something, and you think, oh, fools, they think their money's going to make them happy. Their fame and their their influence on Instagram and whatever it is, they're they're putting their hope in that, and it's really easy to condemn them. People who are super wealthy, oh, they're putting their hope in money and all that. Oh, those politicians who use power, and that's their ultimate end. It's so easy to point out the non-religious ways of hope misplaced. But what's sneaky probably more dangerous, and I think one of the points of Luke's gospel's telling of Palm Sunday is that you can even misplace your hope through religious activity and words. It's not just, you you can miss out on God by being non-religious, but you can miss out on God by being religious as well. It's actually more sneaky, and I think it's more toxic because we end up using the Lord's name in vain, using Jesus' name as a means to achieve the same goal as the non-religious, except it just sounds super spiritual. I actually think this is one of the greatest things that is plaguing the American church today, is that if you think about what is America's contribution to global Christianity, our contribution, so to speak, is the prosperity gospel, the gospel that takes the American dream that says if you just work hard and if you do the right things, you can make it so your life is easier, better, wealthy, healthy, all that you need. It's the American dream. And when the American dream roots come down and suffocate and intertwine with the gospel, you end up with the prosperity gospel, where Jesus becomes a means to a comfortable life. And I so wish, friends, that I could sit here and just point out there at those megachurches whose pastors ask you to sow seeds into their ministry, because if you do, God will bless you as they're preaching in Yeezys and driving, you know, their million-dollar yachts around and flying in their private airplanes. 
I wish we could look at it and just point that it's out there. But the problem is it's in here. It's in me. And this is something the Lord's been revealing in my heart for the last couple of weeks, months actually, is he's revealing where that prosperity gospel, the roots of it, have sunk down and are very sneaky in my own heart, and I think they're in yours as well. We don't say the words, but it happens. Let me give you a little example as to how. Many of you already know uh, that our family uh, is in the process of hopeful adoption uh, of two little ones, a brother and a sister, uh, two, little, two little kids, two and three, and actually I would ask you to pray for us in that. Uh, we are pleading with the Lord to make that happen, uh, and yet it's very much out of our control, so I just ask you to, to pray with us in that. Um, but in order to get ready for that, in order to, to, to make enough space for us to bring those kids into our family, uh, we took a step of faith and a couple of months ago listed our home and have sold our home. We've sold it because we needed something that would give us a little more space to be able to do this. And this is where the Lord has been revealing things in my own heart. Because if you know anything about the housing market right now, it's hot. It's great to sell in, not so great to buy in. And after weeks of searching and feeling like you're walking through everybody's house in every neighborhood, and you're not sure what's going to work, and you bid on a house and you lose it, can I tell you what the little voice inside of my heart said? God, what are you doing? I love you and I follow you. I serve you. Shouldn't this be easier? Shouldn't I get everything that I want in a house that checks all my boxes and actually at a discount? Right? I don't say that out loud, but I hear it. It's in my heart. It's deep in there that feels that I am entitled, that God owes me this. And what's happened in that moment was this revelation that Palm Sunday is not just 2,000 years ago, but Palm Sunday is lived out every day when the Lord reveals to you and to me very gently in His love and in His grace places where we have made God a means to another end, where I've put my hope and my, what, what do I actually want in life is out here, and God has simply become a means to get that. And in my case, it was just a great big home that checks all the boxes at a great price. It's so tricky to be able to discern. We live, it's the air that we breathe. It's so tricky to discern in our hearts where this, this American dream has come in and taken roots and kind of tried to marry the gospel. But it's not a marriage, it's a parasite. Maybe you felt things like that. Maybe you felt things, maybe I'm the only one. If I'm the only one, then bear my confession and you guys can just sit there and you know, you got it. But maybe I'm not, maybe I'm the only one, maybe I'm not, who has ever felt things like this. Hey God, I love you and follow you, so tell me again why I didn't get that promotion. Tell me again why I'm struggling with my finances. I'm following you and my marriage is hard. I'm not even married. God, why haven't you given me a spouse? What about kids? I thought we were supposed to have that. I shouldn't have to work so hard at school. I shouldn't have to have all this conflict in my relationship with coworkers or classmates. I shouldn't be so overwhelmed with grief and sadness. My loved ones shouldn't get sick and die. It's not fair. 
my life should just be easier. And if I'm the only, ones who, only one who has felt that, then I just know I'm not. These are all sneaky ways that we hold God to promises that he's never made. See, the problem is all of those thoughts reveal that subtly, deep down in our hearts, we want to use God as a means to another end. We want to use him as a road rather than a destination. In his book, A Grief Observed, C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says that God cannot be used as a road if you are approaching him not as the goal but as the road, not as the end but as the means, you're not really approaching him at all. Wow. I think a really good example of this would be found in Psalm 37.4. Psalm 37.4 says this. You probably know the passage. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, how do you understand that verse? Take delight in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Because I'm afraid, here's how many of us understand that verse. If I love and follow God enough, He'll give me what I want, which is these other things. That's not what the passage says. No matter how much you want that to be true, that's not what He says. He says, delight yourself in the Lord. Make him the desire of your heart. And guess what? He'll give you the desire of your heart, which is him. He is the prize. The gospel is all about getting God. You get him. He's the end and the means to the end. He is, we, we, we do not follow him. We do not love him and serve him so that we just have purpose in life or that we can become a better version of ourselves. We don't even follow him so we avoid hell and get heaven as if heaven is anything other than the presence of God. He is the end. Now, I have to be really careful because many of you hearing me preach something that's not the prosperity gospel, but now the poverty gospel, as a friend put it to me. And it's not what I'm saying. I'm not preaching the poverty gospel that says you can't have nice things because that's bad. Everything good, everything nice and enjoyable you shouldn't have. Because that's not true. God is a generous father who loves in the same way as parents. You love to give good gifts to your kids. That is godlike. He loves to give good gifts to his kids. In fact, our family is celebrating because yesterday afternoon we got an offer accepted on our house. And we're so thrilled and we're thankful for that. The Lord gives good gifts. But what it's asking us is the very question that we are forced to ask when you read the book of Job, which we'll come to in our Bible reading plan in a couple of months. And that question is, do you love God simply for what he does for you and gives you or for God himself? You have to answer that question because the problem is not the promotion or the house or whatever easy life the question is, are you using God to come to those ends, or are those a means in which you get more of God, in which you can love Him more and serve Him more through any of those things that come? Which is the means and which is the end? So many of us believe that God has promised us just a cush, easy, simple, carefree life, and that's the problem, is that is a promise of the American dream not of the gospel. In fact, Jesus has promised almost the exact opposite, hasn't he? 
hey, in this world, you are going to have sorrow and suffering, and it's going to hurt. But take heart, he says, I have overcome, because it's through death that resurrection happens. And can I tell you, this is why you have to join in this week. You have to be involved in the weeks of Holy Week. Here's why. For so long, many of us have just gone Palm Sunday, woo, celebration. Easter, woo, resurrection. Here's the problem. Subtly, what that does is it believes that we should experience resurrection without the death. There is no resurrection without death. The gospel bids you come and die. Die to yourself, and in that death, joining with Jesus in His death, we will participate in His resurrection into a life that's more beautiful than you could ever imagine. Why? Because you're united with Him. You get Him. Another way that this kind of shows itself is maybe the ways that we claim promises of God. Do we claim the promises of God as an American in a way that only Americans could claim. We look and we go, oh, my God will supply all my needs according to His riches and glory, which usually has less to do with needs and more to do with our wants. Usually has to do with a whole lot of extra stuff that we think God is promising to give us. So here's my question. When you understand the promises of God, do you claim them in such a way that your brother or sister who is persecuted in the Middle East for the name of Jesus can claim it? Or do you claim it only in a way that an American in the 21st century could claim it? The way you understand the promises of God, are they made in such a way that if you were about to be in 65 AD under the persecution of Nero, if you're about to be thrown to the lions for sport, could you claim the promise in the same way? If your end is anything other than God Himself, you're settling for something pathetic and using the most amazing, awesome being in the universe as a means to something that's temporary and fleeting. And I think the primary way that the Lord reveals these things is through disappointment, loss, and sadness. Listen to the way that a professor named Eric Ortland describes this. He says that sometimes God allows pain and loss that have nothing to do with sin in our lives and are not meant to teach us anything. Rather, our loss and our bewilderment become an avenue by which God gives Himself to us more than He could ever have before when we were at ease. And when God puts us in a position where we must hold on to our relationship with God for God's sake only, in which we stand to gain nothing but God, that's when we start to receive Him more fully than we ever had before. You ever been in that spot? It's those moments of sadness, disappointment, and loss where our emotions can kind of be like a check engine light of your heart. Where are the places where you can just fly off the handle in a moment? Enraged. What are the things that really kind of disproportionately cause you to be dis disappointed and in despair. Those emotions may be moments where the Lord is revealing to you somewhere you, where you have misplaced your hope. And it's actually in His kindness that he, did, that he reveals that to you. Palm Sunday also declares, because it's not all bad news, it's actually incredibly good news. Let's go back to our story of Charlie. 
If I'm Charlie's grandpa and I pull up and Charlie walks out to me and goes, hey, where's my presents? You know what I do? I sit back in my car and I leave that little brat standing on the sidewalk <laughs> because he needs to learn. I am not a toy to be used for your ends here. That's what I would do. But this is where Palm Sunday declares to you God's immeasurable, unequaled love. Because Jesus comes, he rides to the Mount of Olives, and he looks down at the city that's going to reject him. Because they're not actually interested in him, because they've missed the day of God's coming to them. And he weeps, and he stays on the donkey, and he goes into Jerusalem, where five days later on Friday, he's betrayed He's spit on, he's whipped, and he's nailed to a cross to die, and he's mocked. That is love greater than you could ever experience from anyone or anything else in life. That's our God. That is his love for you. That it's not in spite of our rejection of him that he came, but it's because of our rejection that he came. You see, God's love for us is so strong that he's not willing to, to allow you to settle for something that's less than him. He's not willing for you to settle for second, third, or fourth best. He wants you to have the best, and that is himself, and he knows you can't have it outside of him, which is why he comes. And you better believe that when Jesus sees things in your life where you are valuing them above him, that he's going to come in and flip some tables. Look at verse 45. Luke 19, 45 after Jesus enters, he entered into the temple courts and he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. See, the merchants in this place looked at Jesus, looked at God as a means to the end, and their end was a dollar or a drachma or whatever their dollar sign was, <laughs> whatever their currency was. It's a means to another end. And Jesus comes in and says, nah, -uh. I'm not willing to let you do that. And the good news is that's what he does in our lives. When disappointment and sorrow come and he reveals things where we've put our hope in something other than him, when we're using him as a means to an end, he reveals those idols and he smashes them and it's painful. But it's because he loves us. He doesn't sit by idly. He works to tear those down for our good. Palm Sunday is a declaration of God's love for you. And if that's all true, then Palm Sunday is also an invitation. It's an invitation to right now Look to Jesus, to do what the crowd did, which is to cry out, Hosanna, Jesus, you are the king. I say that in faith because I know my heart is prone to wander, but I'm looking to you now, Jesus. Martin Luther, one of his famous lines that he said in his 95 thesis, said that the life of a Christian is not simply a one-time repentance, but it's a life of repentance which means that the Lord is using this moment as an invitation for you to turn from anything else that you have put as more valuable than him, that you have put your hope in. Some, what, as the Lord reveals this week to you, things where he goes, hey, what's the end? Seems like you love that more than you love me. Those are beautiful moments, not to hang your head in shame, but to look to Jesus and say, God, your, God, your love for me is so great, you won't let me settle. You want me to have you. And we cry out, Hosanna, which means, Lord, save us. And when we sing and we say Hosanna as a prayer, it means, Lord, save me from myself. Save me from my heart that longs for something other than you. 
Save me from me being the one who takes the creation and ignores the creator, the one who takes the gifts and ignores the giver. Father, forgive me. Save me, Hosanna. And the good news is that Jesus didn't come to seek and to save the found. And he didn't come to seek and to save those who are searching. He came to seek and to save the lost. And so as the Lord reveals places where you are prone to wander and you're losing your way, look to Christ. And let Hosanna be a prayer that says, Lord, save me. And so today, if Jesus is calling you for the first time to turn from all the stuff that you swear is going to make you happy and it just disappoints every time, Look to Jesus. Or if it's the 100th time this week that you're doing the same thing. If Palm Sunday has lived out every single day in your heart, then we do the same thing that happened on Palm Sunday. It has the answer right there in it. Hosanna, Jesus, you are the king. Step off my little throne. It's your seat. I want to know you. You are the end. Let's look to Christ together. Father, forgive us for the many things that we look to other than you. Forgive us for using you as a road to some other destination. You are the great God of the universe who displayed your love for us in this, that Christ died for us. There is no greater love that could be displayed than that. And Father, we often settle. So search our heart, God. Reveal the idols that are there destroy them and lead us in the way everlasting. Give us an undivided heart that wants to know you even through your suffering so that we might know your resurrection. We come to you, Lord, with open hands, knowing that you do not despise us or turn away from us. So, Father, keep breaking our heart for what breaks yours and save us. You have saved us. Save us still because we know that one day you will save us fully where we will see you face to face and you are the prize. And we know that because you gave all and made us your prize. What good news is this? What love is this? Father, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.